Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. So I thought when I left the entertainment industry, I was leaving the industry for good but the structure of the industries are the same. Like they both thrive off of relationships. And if you can spend your time building those relationships, that will 10X your company faster than any capital will. Three, two, one. My name is Esprit Devora, host of the Women in Tech show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create the Women in Tech show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. Hi, this is Joe Peterson. I'm the vice president of cloud and security with Clarify 360. I've been listening to the Women in Tech podcast for about a year, and I was drawn in by the energy and enthusiasm of the Women in Tech podcast. Esprit does a really great job in sharing stories of women in tech so that young female listeners can put themselves in the shoes of these women speaking. See, I strongly believe that if we don't show young women the way forward in tech by sharing our stories, then they won't know what's possible. The stories are what creates the value and inspiration. Great job, guys. LinkedIn presents... Women in Tech podcast, celebrating women in tech from around the world. My name is Angie Carrillo, and I'm your guest host for this episode. With me today is Sequoia Blodgett from California, living in Atlanta, managing partner at Railway VC. Welcome, Sequoia, to Women in Tech. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm super excited to be talking to you. Yay. So we met a while back when we were both in Silicon Valley. So I want you to tell them, everybody, who you are and what you're up to right now. Yeah. So I started my career as a commercial and music video director. So it had nothing to do with technology whatsoever. And slowly but surely, our industry started to transition over to tech. So when I started, record labels were just starting to adopt streaming Actually, they wouldn't even adopt streaming. Streaming had come into the forefront. Napster was like coming down. And then Spotify was like the big new like conglomerate on the market. And labels were like, no, we're, we still want to do record sales. And basically Spotify was like, okay, we'll circumvent that. And we will gather the artists and we will basically stream their records. And you guys won't reap any of those profits. So the labels suffered massively, which caused us to suffer as creatives. Like I was a director, so we were a byproduct of that industry. So every single project that I had, the budgets dropped drastically. So when I started, we you would see video projects from anywhere from 200, 100,000, 250,000, sometimes a million dollars, depending on who the director was. Because they were looked at as like little short films and like massive promotions for the artist. And eventually we were getting budgets like 20,000, 10,000. And we're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, how are we supposed to put our best foot forward? Right. And also, how are we supposed to eat? So there was, you know, those, those things that kind of shook my world up. And I, had moved to, I was in LA. I had moved to Atlanta to try to kind of figure out, okay, maybe there's another way to do that. Maybe there's a way to meet with the artists and the management and I could just get the budgets directly, but the labels were really like gatekeepers. So eventually it just stopped working out and I packed it up and I moved back to, actually I put a poll on Facebook and I was like, Hey friends, (laughs) I was like, if anybody has any recommendations in terms of like where I should go, let me know. Should I go back to LA, 
should I go to New York? That was an option. Or should I go to London? Because I was like, well, I, I could, at this point, I could just throw caution to the wind, right? Like, I could go to London. So really, one of my friends that have, who was from my alma mater, I went to Loyola Marymount University. That's where I graduated from my undergrad. She reached out and she was like, look, I just bought a three bedroom house in L.A. Like until you figure out whatever it is that you're doing, come to L.A. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> Done. <laughs> so I packed it up and literally moved back to Los Angeles and moved in with her. And I stayed with her for a little bit. And I was like, OK, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? My production circle was still there, but I was still having the same issue because obviously budgets were, were continuously dropping. And I heard about this program called Alexa Cafe, which was this all girls entrepreneurship and tech boot camp. And I was like, all right, well, I could teach them production. Like I could go and talk about product and I could go and talk about, and at that time, I don't even think I was calling product product. I was just like, we can talk about brand and we can do like just very thing, the things that I knew from the production standpoint, like how to create content, like all that stuff. So when I went out there, it was basically all of these really young girls from the ages of 10 to 15. It was across the street from Stanford University. And their parents were like the COO of YouTube, the CEO of, you know, all these major tech companies. I think Sheryl Sandberg's daughter was in one of our camps. And so basically we were tasked with helping them understand how to create these projects or from their standpoint, these like MVPs, which I didn't even know was a thing. Like I didn't even know a minimum viable product so that they can then bring it to VCs in Palo Alto who would come to the campus and basically pitch these VCs. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, like these young girls, I mean, like if they can do this, I definitely like, I would, they inspired me. Honestly, they were the inspiration as to why I made that transition. And so with that being said, one of the other women who were at the camp, she was at NYU at the time. Her name was Jamie. And she was like, you know what? You seem extremely entrepreneurial. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard of this program called Draper University, but you should probably look into it. And I was like, who? <laughs> so, so I went home, looked it up, and I was like, this seems so, like, it seemed like, honestly, it seemed like adult summer camp. <laughs> It's like, this seems like so much fun. Like at the core of my being, I am a huge child. So it's like, if nothing else, <laughs> I'm going to go here and I'm just going to have a ball. I don't know what I'm going to do. I know that they want us to create this product. And at the time I was going through a bunch of relationship issues and I was like, okay, like, how do you, how are you dating? Like, how do you resolve like issues internally when, when you're dating, how you resolve them with the person that you're dating, you know? So my idea going into Draper was, all right, I'm going to create a solution for issues in dating. So at the time it was like Tinder, you know, the league had just come. I don't even think the league was out. Maybe Bumble. I don't know. I know Tinder was the hot. So I don't even think Bumble was out. So I was like, all right, my idea is, to create a race relationship coaching app where the coaches help you solve the relationship once you're in the relationship. Because no one, like these apps are putting you in these relationships, but what is keeping you in these things, right? Yeah, then you're back in the app. So the thing is that they need you to go back up in the app so they keep reusing the users, right? <laughs> yes. So essentially what happened was I went home, I applied for Draper and I applied for the scholarship because I definitely did not have the money at the time. It was like 10000 And I applied for a scholarship, and I ended up getting a portion of that scholarship, the Jesse Draper Scholarship, which is Tim Starter. So I got a portion of that scholarship. And what was really, really interesting is when I pitched, I had this idea going in. But as I was about to leave, I was packing and getting ready to leave. And I had woken up that day and I was just scrolling through Facebook and I saw this like post and it was like suicide by and it was one of my friends. And I was like, wait, what? And she was pretty popular. She was in a girl group that Robin Anton had redone the Pussycat Dolls. Her name was Simone Battle. 
And I went and looked at it because it was an article on TMZ um, that somebody posted on Facebook. So I went and looked at it. And I was just like, how? Like, how? Like, she was like my little sister. Like, I did so much for her. Like, I we went and, like, did, like, photo shoots and, like, video content, all this stuff. And I didn't know she was struggling with anything. Like, I had no clue. So understanding that, like, just took me, like, it just, like, I don't know. I, I felt like I had something else to solve at that point. Like, even though I came with the idea of this relationship coaching app and solving those problems, I was like, what about wellness? Like, what is, what, like, how did, how do you people get in that position and other people who are close to them not know anything about it? So that kind of pivoted the idea a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's essentially what I went into Draper University with and kind of how I molded the company. Yes. Okay. So I didn't know that part of your story because when we met, we met already when you were at Draper. And I think something that you mentioned about that issue that you saw with your friend, right? It's an issue that I've also seen with a lot of founders. It's like, when they get um, investors, right, like they get the capital and then they cannot say that how they're actually doing themselves and how the company is actually doing. Because once they they have this capital, they also have the responsibility for their investors. So when you ask a founder, sometimes he wouldn't say the real thing. He wouldn't say like, well, actually, my startup is bleeding money. We haven't found product market fit or, I don't know, like some other real issue or I'm struggling with my mental health, right? And I think this is really important because sometimes you could be close to them, but they cannot say what's really going on because of that perceived, right? Like everything has to be um, growing, we're always acquiring more, growing and building faster, and blah, blah, blah. So I would like to, to take everybody because uh, I, I think you have a really interesting perspective on this issue because you've been through something like that, right? As a founder, I mean, with your first startup, you, you have to face certain uh journey like that so a little bit take us a little bit there but I definitely want to go into your role now as an investor too because you've been through that now as an investor I also want you to to tell how you're helping founders I like you said I didn't know like I had no idea that she was struggling the way she was struggling and as a founder with 7am that was the company that I founded and kind of molded while I was at Draper. I got an investment from Tim and I had that same struggle and it's the fear and the embarrassment of like failure. And it's like, I know I'm dope. Like I know I know what I'm doing, or at least I think I know what I'm doing, or at least I think I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. Right. Why am I struggling the way that I'm struggling and why can't I solve it? Right. And I think that was a big, huge issue with me at Draper is I had gotten the funding, but I was like, I can't grow this business as fast as like I think I'm supposed to. Like I'm not hitting the metrics that I think I'm supposed to be hitting. And now that I'm an investor, I understand what those metrics are, but I wasn't really clear on what those metrics were as a founder. And I think a lot of those metrics were like heavy on me because I was a team of one. Right. I had a co-founder that I had brought in while I was at Draper, who was a celebrity like coach who I was like, oh, she would be good for like brand recognition and like getting us customers, customer acquisition. But she had her own agenda in terms of what she wanted for the platform. And it just we were butting heads. And I didn't want to obviously take away from who she was as a person because I understand stood her perspective. But we needed to be founders at that point. And she didn't understand that perspective, right? 
So I had brought her on and ended up having to remove her from the team later. Like it was not a huge legal issue because we had just brought her on, but then to have to go back to her after going, Hey, you're going to, you're going to be the co-founder of this company going back to her and being like, actually, it's not going to work out. You know what I mean? It's like having a breakup. Right. And so yeah, break up with that co-founder and then like, go, all right, well, you signed up for this. Tim has invested in you as a person. So you feel indebted to him. What, how are we going to make this make sense? Like, how are we going to make this work? And the thing was, I was getting customers. So it was just not enough customers to scale a business. Like you need more money in order to scale that business, even though the customer acquisition is coming in. So I would go to other investors in Silicon Valley and pitch them the business. And they're like, yeah, we don't really see the vision. And I'm like, but I have customers. Like, yeah, we still don't see the vision, right? But there's so many other things that investors look for that don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't see the vision. They just may not think for them, it's a venture backable company, right? So even though I was able to tell them, okay, look, here's the use case, here are the numbers, here are the metrics, this is the market sizing, this is what I think is going to happen with this business, it was still a kind of shaky business model because I wanted to address the wellness aspect of, of the business, but I also came with a relationship aspect in the beginning. So it was like, so I was still trying to, to your point earlier, I was still trying to find product market fit. Like what exactly is this business? And so users were buying into the platform, which essentially it became a platform for anybody who wanted help in the wellness space, whether that be relationships, whether that be mental health. Um, I brought Gina Close on there. She did a program on there and hers was uh, mindfulness. So it just became kind of like a, what's a good comparison today? I don't know. It was just like an education platform for the mm -hmm. wellness space, right? Um, and so yeah, yeah. eventually it became a thing, but it took a minute <laughs> to unravel and investors were not patient with that unraveling because I didn't have the same relationship with them as I did with Tim. And although he has a very significant name in Silicon Valley, they still weren't willing to cut those checks. So it just left me in a really crazy space because I'm like, I have to prove it to them, but then I also have to prove it to him. And now I don't want to talk about it with anybody. And so I ended up staying at Draper for like three years, and like getting three different jobs, trying to like sustain. Cause I was like, I can't use his money to live. Like I have to live and like use his money for the company. So I like random jobs. I was like at a gymnastics coach. I worked to the massage envy for like five minutes game room like a like the escape room like all these like random things that i knew that i could go in and quit <laughs> like and nobody was gonna be like what are you doing like why are you quitting so it was just a very odd time and then i just had to like come to terms with myself and just be like look you don't have enough money to sustain your livelihood like yes you can continue to chip away at this but you got to come to a realization and just like close this business like or go get a real full-time job and then decide like okay what do you want to do right so it just is it, it became a capital issue but the capital issue was a timing issue really because it was too early for investors to care and which i can't even say that because now that i'm investing there's no real such thing as too early because i've seen some crazy things happen <laughs> so but my story, I would say this, my story wasn't compelling enough for the investors that I approached to care, to make the, to cut the checks because Silicon Valley is a very like innovative city. Like it's very much like a, in an innovative ecosystem. It's very much like who's going to create the next like autonomous rocket ship to get us to Pluto. It's like one of those things. So I'm like, but I just want to help the dating and wellness community. And they're like, yeah, not really. So it didn't really work out well for me. But I think now that I know I would go about it a little bit differently in terms of the type of investors that I approach. So I think that's one thing that I will say is really important to anybody who's looking for investment is just really understanding the investor's thesis. Like what exactly do they want? And you're and you must be aligned with that thesis, right? I had approached an ed tech investment firm, but they still couldn't 
they didn't see it as ed tech, even though technically it was an ed tech platform, they didn't see it as ed tech. So I think just being very clear about what the business is and then aligning yourself with those investors who really understand. And even more importantly, like the investor themselves, like it doesn't even need to be the thesis of the firm. It's a people industry. So aligning yourself with investors who are like you who understand what you want to build. So not necessarily just like, you know, the thesis, because that's just a generality. Like it's more like, does Angie and do Angie and I like connect? And then does she understand this business? And is she excited about it as a person? Forget her being an investor, because if she's excited about it as a person, she has to deploy capital, like regardless. So she's more likely to deploy that capital to me if she's excited about me, the entrepreneur and the product that I'm building. Yeah. And I think also in the long term, right? Like the first equity that you're looking for is always way more expensive for you to give away. And if you're not aligned, if that investor really doesn't know you, you're actually putting someone in your cap table that might want you gone as soon as something something goes wrong. They're going to be like, eh, let's take away the founder, right? Like, so it's really tricky. And I mean, Sequoia, I learned a lot from you. You, you remember, I, I remember you giving me this advice. It was like, everybody is trying to pitch this investor. Everybody is going on and on, you know, like just talking about, you know, like their business and stuff. But what you did in order to get uh, Tim's attention at first was like, you're like, no, I'm just going to, you know, go here, tell him how, how everything's doing, but not ask for money because everybody else is asking for money. And I'm just going to be here networking. And I think that's what made me stand up and what made me also like end up getting, you know, like and working for, for Draper University as an entrepreneur in residence after you left. So you passed the torch there. Uh, and and I totally, you know, I'm very grateful for that advice because what you say is like, it's a people business. It's on a human and human level, right? And I love that uh, advice from you. You're totally correct in terms of how I approached him. It actually, my relationship with Tim started before I got to Draper. Like when I didn't have the money to go to Draper, one of the things, so they gave me half of the scholarship. And one of the things that they suggested was that I crowdfund. And I was like, no, (laughs) like, because in my community, crowdfunding, like felt like begging. It was like, I won't even blame the culture because maybe somebody else has a different perspective on crowdfunding. But I personally felt like it felt like not just, yeah, I'm begging, but also like, you just, you have videos on MTV right now. Like, why are you crowdfunding? So it was like, I had to also tell you that I was failing, like in order to crowdfund. So at some point I was just like, you know what, if you actually want to go to this program, you're going to have to humble yourself. Like whatever ego you have that's stopping you from doing this, like get rid of it right now. So I just reached out to a bunch of people and I was like, Hey, I want to go to this program, Draper University. I need funding. Like, can you guys contribute to this crowdfunding campaign? And one of like, before I even started as, as a music video director, I worked in radio. It was one of my internships when I was in college. And one of our producers was like, Hey, you know what, Sequoia, like I'll do something better. Instead of contributing to your campaign, I'll invite you to LA to the station in LA 640 KFI, which is the number one AM station in the world. Basically they have like all the crazy controversial talk, like radio hosts, like, you know, so he was like, I'll invite you up there and you can talk about like Draper University, but we need somebody from Draper to come. And so I reached out to them and they were like, well, what about Jesse? Because she is in LA. So I reached out to her. She's like, I can't do it. I have Newark Fashion Week during the time that you guys want to book it. And so Carol, who was the then COO of Draper said, hey, well, let me see if Tim can do it. And I was like, Tim who? <laughs> what? What you talking about? <laughs> so, 
So long story short, basically they got Tim to do it. Well, I guess at some point they explained what the student was doing. I don't know how the conversation went in the back end, but he was like, all right. And so he literally jumped on this plane and flew to Los Angeles. He had never met me before. He had never, like we had never had any type of engagement. So that was really bold of him, to be honest. (laughs) Basically, he flew to Los Angeles to do this radio show with me because also, and here's the, the point of the story, the value app for him is he was campaigning for California to be broken up into six different states, so six Californias, because 640KFI was such a huge station and ha- it basically had his audience. He benefited massively from being on that like station and like doing the interview, right? So he talked about six Californias for the first half of the interview. Then he and I talked about Draper University for the second half of the interview. And then he got back on a plane and flew back to, to, to the Bay Area. And that was how we met. And a lot of people didn't know that. So our value or my value add for him started way before I got into Draper. So by the time I got to Draper, he was like, oh, I know her. Like, <laughs> like we just did a radio show together. So yeah, it was bringing value to him before I asked for value. Oh my God, that's such a good lesson because sometimes it's, you know, like we're, we're focused on taking, 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 but actually it's what can you give, right? Like what are the agenda that beyond the fund that that, that person actually cares about, right? Like, I mean, they really cared about that initiative back in the day, right? And that was really near to his heart. It was something that he was pushing. So you went and, and also find an opportunity that it was a common opportunity. It was an opportunity for you to go and fundraise for the program. And it was an opportunity to, for him also to get more you know, visibility into his initiative. I think that was really smart. And I would love for more people to approach a win-win mindset with investors like that, right? Like not just sending, you know, a call email with your pitch deck. Like I just delete it because I'm like, I don't know you. I have no incentive to actually look at this. I'm, and I just delete it. Yeah. And, and it's not, you know, like that you don't want to help people, that you don't want to help founders. It's actually part of, of your core mission as being a former farm founder and learning through failure, right? Um, I think that's also very important and something that I wanted to just touch on before we move into the second part of like how you're adding value now as an investor, but, but sometimes that we don't see that these failures, you know, are necessary. Everybody has tons of skeletons on, on their closet. Uh, even like all these massive, you know, tech CEOs that we see, they all have failures behind them. But we don't talk about that enough. And sometimes we didn't know, you know, like how someone actually come across. And we just think it's like, oh, they just... Out of out of corporate or out of you know like their first job, they had this amazing idea and then money came in you know raining and magically they made it happen and that's another point that I want to to touch with you is that is capital you know sometimes I think I see that entrepreneurs think that capital will solve everything. Right. And that's why you you can feel some desperation in the emails, in the call emails going through massively, like all the investors that they had on their on their um, on their emails. But um, so now I really want to now knowing your background as a founder, right? Like, are you helping founders as an investor? And what led you to venture capital and seeing that your potential uh, with all your experience can help more people that way? Yeah, that is such a good question. And also a really good point. Yeah, it's not like I don't, when I ignore an email that comes into me, that is a cold email. It's not because I don't want to help you. It's just because there's such an influx and I don't have a relationship with you. And it's a lot of relationships at risk. So if I take my name and go send it to a VC firm that I have a relationship with, 
they're looking at me. Like you needed to vet this person. You needed to make sure that they were a good founder. You needed to make sure this was a good company. Like it comes back to on me. So in order to just mitigate any issues, I haven't dated you yet, quote unquote. <laughs> so I can't say that. Like, I just, I don't know who you are. Right. And so that's where it like gets sticky for me. And that's why I don't take the cold emails. But what I realized going through my process after I left the entertainment industry, and I won't say left, after I transitioned over, what I realized going through that process was I really love helping people. Like at my core, I, it just makes me genuinely happy to know that I have been able to make an impact. And I think a lot of, to your point, founders are like, oh no, I need capital. Yeah, you do. You do need capital to build a business, right? That's inevitable. But that is not the only thing you need. And you need to be creative when you don't have the capital, right? Like how do you utilize your partnerships? How do you utilize your relationships? And that's, I think the biggest thing about VC is it is very much like the entertainment industry. So I thought when I left the entertainment industry, I was leaving the industry for good, but the structure of the industries are the same. Like they both thrive off of relationships. And if you can spend your time building those relationships, that will 10x your company faster than any capital will, right? So if you are sitting there and you are out making you know, strategic relationships happen, how do I partner with you so that you have a benefit and I have a benefit? How do you go and figure out, okay, I don't have a huge marketing spend, so I can add value to you here if you can help me generate leads by partnering with me and we can switch, you know, social media channels and we could, you know, whatever your, whoever your audience is, I could ping your audience and you could ping my audience and you could utilize them as leads. Whatever the joint venture is, that is the best way to add value, right? That's the best way to grow your business when you have no money because, there's always a relationship exchange. There's all, no one has every single element of what they need. It's always an exchange of value for both parties. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs now come into the game and they're like, I just need capital. I just need to raise capital. No, you don't. <laughs> you need to understand how to build relationships. I think every single entrepreneur fundamentally, any program fundamentally needs to start with relationship building. How do you utilize the relationships that are currently around you? How do you build peer to peer? How do you, you know, like that is to me the biggest foundation versus a capital raise. And I understand wholeheartedly why a capital raise has been put into people's psychologies as to why, like you're seeing all of these articles that says XYZ just wait, raised 4 million. This person just raised 10 million. That person just raised 30 million. So you're like, okay, I just want to raise. Yeah, no, you don't see this person built 20 relationships with this person in order to be able to raise up. You know what I'm saying? You don't see the nuts and bolts of the actual article. You're only seeing like the pizzazz. And I, I liken that to the entertainment industry too, because it's the, it's the sexy of it, right? It's not sexy to be like, I sat in this room and had a meeting for two hours about how we could partner. <laughs> it's not sexy. So the headline is always going to be like, Angie raised 4 million on her new, you know, ed tech startup, whatever it is. That's always going to be the headline, but that's actually not the root of the issue. The root of the issue is you building those relationships in order to leverage those relationships to be able to raise that money. Right. So for me, it's always super impressive. Like, like it's totally warms my heart when I talk to a founder and they come to me by way of a relationship. And I say, hey, we can't invest now, but please give me these things. I will list them out because I'll go run it by our team. Like I still have a partnership with VU Venture Partners. So anytime like I get a deal, I'll run it by them if it makes sense. So I'll run it by the team and they'll be like, oh, they don't have this, 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 and this. So I will go back and tell you, you need this, 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 and this. And it makes me so happy when a founder comes back with businesses. <laughs> like they did the work. They actually listen, they actually execute and they're ready to go, right? And so those are the companies that we're more likely to invest in because we know one, that you're a person of your word, 
that you're actually going to do the work that is necessary, even if you don't have the capital necessary. And two, you actually follow through. Like if I tell you or ask you to do something, you go and you execute on that. So those are the things that like ways that I like to see an entrepreneur maneuver in terms of the ways that I personally add value. I will go and make introductions if I have an introduction that's not a capital introduction. I'll go make a partnership introduction. I have no problem doing that if I know the entrepreneur. Again, you have to build a relationship with me first. I'm very protective of my network. I will not extend my relationships to anybody who I don't feel like is valuable or that I have a relationship with, you know? So because I'm not going to burn my bridges. Like I worked way too hard to create the relationships that I created and I have very, very high level relationships and I don't mind like making those introductions, but I want you to be in alignment with the introduction that I'm making, right? If somebody's like, hey, Sequoia, can you introduce me to Tim Draper? Of course. But like, why? Like, what are those? What, what, why would I make that introduction? That's what I'm looking at. And once I understand, okay, this person is a hard worker. They're a great entrepreneur. They have a product that makes sense for his thesis. Et cetera, et cetera. Like I go down my own checklist that I am happy to make those introductions. Well, that that's very interesting. One, how you protect so you don't burn bridges. And two, that this process could take months or years either, right? And sometimes, um, I don't know, like I also think the media romanticizes this not only with the headlines but with all the series and movies that you see like people just writing a check on a napkin and you think that's how people do business there and actually it's not right like uh, and this is very important it's like between the moment right like that someone wants to create an initial relationship with you as an investor Till the moment that, you know, like you go and give feedback and they go and execute, it could be months, right? Like, so tell us a little bit more. Like, do you think that now things have changed as things have moved more remotely? And those things move faster or slower? Or how are you creating these new relationships in this remote world online? Me having to transact remotely doesn't necessarily change too many things because I wasn't in VC as an investor at the t- before the pandemic. I didn't start investing until this year, top of this year as an as a official venture capitalist, right? And so everything that I dealt with was always online. And so I would see relationships come in from like LinkedIn. I would literally go on LinkedIn and prove when I was looking for companies to do diligence on to see which we would what we would invest in. I would just prove my connections because for whatever reason, we treat LinkedIn like Facebook or Instagram and we just click connect, connect, connect. <laughs> but you don't really do anything with those people, right? So I would just go through and I'd be like, all right. Who has a business? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, cool. So then I'd email them like, hey, tell me about what you're working on. And then they would email me back. Oh, I'm da-da-da-da. Because we already have the connection from LinkedIn, right? Like I've seen what you've been posting, but I don't really have any insight in terms of what you're working on. Or we've met like at some conference or something and we just added each other really quickly. But that could be literally the basis of the relationship. It doesn't have to be this extensive thing where you come and eat dinner at my house. You just just <laughs> something very basic like a LinkedIn connection. So when I saw that, I actually pulled a couple of companies from LinkedIn and did diligence on those companies and then sent them over to VU to see if we would make those investments. So yeah, I don't think I think we can all still be very resourceful having the opportunities to be in a virtual space. Like we don't have to take these meetings and thank God, because I can't be flying back and forth to Silicon Valley every week. Like this is not going to happen. And I think that's very good that we can still be able to utilize our social media resources. LinkedIn by, you know, even though it doesn't feel like it's still a social media network, right? You still have to be social. You still want to have those connections. Literally the button says connect. So go through that process, look at who you have in your network, And even if there is a second or third connection, ask somebody to make an introduction to you. I would even take a relationship that was introduced to me before I would take a cold email, right? If you are like a second or third connection for me on LinkedIn and you went and found somebody who actually knows me as a first connection, then I would even consider that. But the cold 
straight out emails. I just, I can't, I can't do those. Yeah. And, and I know that some, um, some investors, specifically in the um, impact investing, pro-diversity, they're trying to um, say that, yeah, like we take, you know, like cold, cold uh, emails and stuff like because they want to be more inclusive. But the thing is that what, what I've seen is that if I can, if I can take the time to make a personal connection, to go and dig into my network, go through my LinkedIn, see what connections we have in common or start building those connections early on. I mean, if I've done that, like I believe that other people can do that. So I mean, that that's, uh, on a personal, on a personal note, my my individual thing, right? And each investor likes to be pitched very differently, right? Like, so how do how do you like to be pitched? So now we know you like being pitched for a warm intro, not a cold one. Is there any particular stage that you are investing? Particular industry that you like more in in right now as an investor, like? Yeah, so I'm particular to Frontier Tech, which is your very futuristic technology. I think I was indoctrinated with that perspective by going through Tim Draper because of his perspective and because that was my introduction to venture capital. So I really lean into technology that's very futuristic and very like technology that's going to change an industry or the way people act or the way people associate with the world. And so some of our recent investments, we did this company Nautilus, which is a, an autonomous drone. It's a flying autonomous drone for deliveries. So think about Tesla like that flies basically. So they got a $6 billion government contract and we got into that investment before the valuation included that $6 billion government contract. And so they're going to be, they're good. They don't need funding. <laughs> like, of course they'll decide, you know, what their liquidity event will be, will, what acquisition and what will happen. But yeah, that's like a solid company. Another one is Mojo Vision. It's basically augmented reality uh, contact lenses. So basically what they do is you pop the contact lens in and it's a smart contact lens and you can scan the room and it'll give you data about different things in the room. So it will help, you know, in that regard. So those are the things that are interesting to me. Very futuristic, things that are changing industries, changing the world. Um, and we'll do that anywhere from C to Series A. I look at Series A a little bit more because of the fact that there's such like far out thoughts in terms of what these products are that I need to see something established because it's so like out there. We do have an earlier stage investment that was pre-seed which was basically NFTs for books. So things think Barnes and Nobles, like the NFT version. So that was an earlier investment. They didn't really have too much in the market, but I think that was just a gamble to be honest, <laughs> because there was so much <laughs> web three and NFT talk that it was like, okay, well, we might as well put something in here. Right. And sometimes that happens. It's like, I, I saw that some, some friends that are, were investor too at the beginning of the year. Everybody wanted to be in Web3. And sometimes, you know, like it's not only having a good startup and a good offer and a good product, but it's being in the market at the right time, right? Like, uh, and for them, it was the right timing. Right now, if someone would come with something about Web3, I don't think <laughs> that would happen. <laughs> I can't be bothered. I literally can't be bothered. <laughs> don't come to me with your Web3 and your NFT project. <laughs> we will do things that support the ecosystem. So there is a company that came to me recently, which they came early in the year and I didn't think they were ready. And they were actually who I was speaking about called Pipeline. So this company is an animator marketplace. So they will support like Web3 NFT platforms, but they also have a bigger use case, right? So Studios need animators, networks need animators, production companies need animators. So we're not leaning specifically on Web3 when it comes to them. They actually, although because they're able to do that, they can service that industry that makes us excited, but they actually have another market share that they can capture. So that's a company we're diligencing right now. But um, yeah, like 
in terms of, to your point, the, like being in the, at the right time. And that is exactly why we make that investment. It's like, okay, like everybody's making these investments. We want to make sure that we're in. We're not, we don't have a lot of skin in the game. Um, our investors, our LPs were very hesitant when it came to that, that platform, but we did put some skin in the game and we'll see. I mean, it's very early. We don't have any traction that I could really talk about, um, at the moment, but that I think web three will be developing for the next two to three years. So I didn't expect to see any traction. Whereas these other companies are at seed series a, we expect traction. They have strong traction um, and they're well financed. So <laughs> I don't see like with those other companies, I don't see any reservation. I mean, no company is a hundred percent guaranteed su to succeed, but I don't see where the reservation would be for us to make those investments. And then also I was very strategic about, cause, because Railway Ventures is a syndicate. So what I did was all of my LPs are people of color and women, right? I understand with our mm. dynamic in terms of like us as a people, like what we're dealing with financially yeah. and how we've dealt, like our introduction to VC and how we've been like accepted into that ecosystem. So I didn't want to put their money at risk like that. Right. Like I wanted to have some safer bets. I can't even say like they're the safest bet because nothing is in VC. It's like way too early to even know. But I wanted to make sure that because this is a new game for people of color, for women LPs, I wanted to make sure that we were making the safest bets that we could possibly make. Yeah. I mean, I love that. That That's great. And also that, that this category in general, you know, like venture capital is very risky as, as an investor, but I mean, high risk high reward, right? And how we're going to change the narrative for more women of color and more people of color in general, like it's also by making big bets in the future, right? So what other things are, do you look into a team or into a founder when you are assessing that bet, that initial bet that, that you want to invest in them? Yeah. So we absolutely look at the team. Like, do you have a competitive advantage as a team, not just the product? Like who has done something in this space? Because yes, I can be a founder of Nautilus, but I've never built an autonomous anything. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I'm looking at the team and their expertise and like, what's their unique value proposition to the company? Like, why are they uniquely positioned for this specific company? I think that's super important to understand. Like, why them? Why? Like, like I said, I can build Nautilus, but probably not. Like, it's probably not going to go as far as the outstanding founders that they have, right? And so I'm always looking at that unique value proposition from the team's perspective. And then obviously, like across the board, we want to understand the market sizing. Like, how big can this possibly be? Like every venture capitalist wants to understand that because of the type of risk, like you were saying, we got to make sure we have a, a good return on it. And so those are things we're looking at, but definitely the competitive advantage, the unique value proposition. Why are you qualified, uniquely qualified to build this company? And then what are you doing different, right? If somebody, now these companies are very different, but if somebody was trying to do something similar, why do you out, like, why do you shine versus this other company? Like, why are you outshining them? So do you have, is it faster? Is your product better? Is it cheaper? Like, why would a consumer come to you or an enterprise company come to you versus the competitor? Right? So we look at that too, like, what's the competitive landscape? And like, why do they why do you outshine them? Like why, why you versus them? But I think really when you're building something you, as unique as this type of technology, first of all, it's rare that we have a lot of like competitors in the market. Cause this is like a conglomerate of a bunch of different companies together. And then like, this is the company that was burst out of the company. So like, if I'm saying autonomous drones, okay, yes, there are drones. And then there's autonomous vehicles, but there's no like meeting in the middle. Right. So you're not going to have a huge competitive landscape, which is super exciting for us because you can be first to market, but also you're going to have a lot of 
road bumps because you don't have a roadmap, right? So you're first to market, but you don't have anybody who's done this before. So you, we're really banking on the founder at that point and seeing how much subject matter expertise do they have and like, how can they carry this company? And then what other investors are in the, in the round? I think that's super important to understand is like when you are getting BC money, they want to know, or we want to know like who else has made this bet, right? Are we the crazy fools that are making this by ourselves? Or like, <laughs> like who else is in this round? It's like, oh, okay, I get it. I, especially investors who have a track record. So like if an A16Z and Dreesen Horowitz or if a Tim Draper, because he's known for those very risky bets or, you know, anybody who's used to betting on startups like that, if they have said yes, then we're more likely to say yes. Nice. Yeah. So this is really important. And thank you so much for being so, so bold and honest with your thesis, because a, a lot of people wouldn't actually say that. and and tell you right to your face, like, no, right? And, and sometimes investors, they they tell you in, in very different ways, but right now you're being very, very honest and I really appreciate it because this is exactly, this is exactly the difference, I think, because you've been a founder before, right? And, and you've been through that and you face those issues of, of being uh, having a company with one one investor and then realizing that actually it really adds a lot of value when you're not only having one investor or one angel investor but you have these recognized funds with a track record and how that helps with evaluation and in general adding more value that that's what we are all here for, right? Uh, I mean, growing, adding value, and that the company goes public or has a liquidation event at some point, right? But thank you so much. I was just going to add really quickly. Also, I think with the value add, what people don't realize is, yes, I'm adding capital, but there is a lot of value added investors. And the relationships are very important. The reason why Nautilus was able to broker that deal had a lot to do with one of the investors at VU Venture Partners making an introduction, right? And so they, yes, have a strong product. They have a very strong team, but you still need those introductions. And just like they say, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to build a startup, like seriously, like my relationships, that investor's relationships, the next investor's relationships, all those relationships are important. So it's not necessarily like I'm getting capital from all of these different investors. It's more so I'm getting the relationships and the network of all these different investors. And I think that's really important to highlight. Yes, because behind every business, there's people, right? Like in the end, even if your customer is another business and it's a B2B business model, Humans are in the end the ones who are, you know, in every single industry. So, gosh, thank you so much, Sequoia. I really love um, everything that you know, how our conversation is moving. And now I have some fire questions, quick fire questions that I want to ask you. So maybe some reflections. Let's start for with, with a woman in tech that inspires you. That is a good question. A woman in tech who inspires me. I think Sheryl Sandberg is super inspirational just because of what she's accomplished, right? So seeing her go from, I know lean in can be very controversial depending on whose perspective it is, but seeing her go from where she started to being a COO of a major, like meta, like huge, right? I mean, that to me, just watching how she grew and how she was able to get to that point was super inspiring. Now, I don't ever want to run a massive tech company like that because it's so much pressure, but just knowing that it's possible is super inspirational to me. That's good. Yeah. I mean, yeah, with, with the whole LinkedIn um, controversial part, I think it took a little bit of uh, the great achievements that he, she had as, as a woman in tech right? So yeah, props to that. Okay. So favorite book or latest book? My favorite book, I would definitely say venture deals. If we're talking about venture capital, because that book mm. breaks down everything that you've 
ever wanted to know about venture capital. Now, I would say a very, very big runner up is Angel by Jason Calacanis if you want to be an investor. Because he is so clear about how to go about investing as an angel investor. That book was very, very helpful for me. I love that book. So both of those, I would say, are on my top. Good. Yeah. I, I really like Venture Theory, but I haven't read the angel one. So I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah. Favorite podcast or latest podcast that you have heard that you have listened to this, this week? Yeah, so I think my favorite podcast right now is Earn Your Leisure. So they are not in the VC space whatsoever, but they're in the financial literacy space. And it's a bunch of people that you would never think would be in the financial literacy, financial literal, literacy, there you go, <laughs> words, right? There's a bunch of people that you wouldn't think would be in that specific space that are very much who I would have encountered in the entertainment industry. So now they've kind of converged the two worlds and it's very like hip hop, it's very fly, it's very just very much my culture before the tech industry. So watching them come in and kind of like capitalize off of not just VC, but more so like financial literacy as a whole, because venture capital is one little small minute element of like the larger financial ecosystem, right? There's so many other ways that you can like garner capital for your business that have nothing to do with venture capital. Um, and I love that they're teaching people how to do that without really focusing on raising funds. So I, I have their sweater on right now. Love it. Yeah. Great. So best resource for tech, any apps, anything that you're, you know, using on your day to day and that you love? cannot live without. I trade the markets. So not only am I in the private, on the private side, I'm also on the public side and I trade the public markets. So I think Thinkorswim is my literal favorite app right now. I look at it every single morning. Actually, I have to do two, right? Because you can't trade without looking at charts. So there's technical analysis, which is your actual charts to see what like the, the stock is going to go to. So we obviously have seen all of these crazy things happen with these tech companies. The inflated numbers, valuations not hitting, the misses of the earnings, so markets dropping. And so, yeah, we can have money in VC, which is, you know, not safe, but it's an earlier bet. So we don't really know what's going to happen. It could be a five to 10 year horizon, time horizon, right? But with trading, it gives me access to capital like right away. So I could go and I could do an options trade. I could make money like tomorrow versus like waiting five years for this company to have an M&A, like a merger acquisition or a IPO, right? I can go straight to the public markets, trade those markets, and then get money out of those markets as well. So I think it's very important to look at the ecosystem as a whole, like not just venture capital, but also like later stage, like like private equity hedge funds, like that's interesting to me. And then also like your public markets, because anybody, I don't care who you are, I think needs to understand like fundamentals and technicals when it comes to stock and understand that you can get money out of the market, even if you're not qualified to be a venture capitalist. So I know that this was a rapid fire question, but like, I think that's a huge point I want to land on is like, VC has been a, a very secluded industry where you have to have a million dollars in net worth in order to be able to invest in these deals. You have to make $200,000 over a two-year span, three hundred dollars if you have a spouse, right? But you can make $5 and go trade the public markets. So, you know, I just want to help people understand like there's an opportunity across the board for every single person. And it's not just, you don't have to be a venture capitalist. You can literally just be an everyday person and be a retail trader and make money as well. Gosh, I would love to have you for another episode with your diversified portfolio. So you're not only investing in these alternative assets, right? That is venture capital and interested in also like uh, private equity will be also uh, an alternative asset, but you're also in the public markets, which is available for everybody, right? And yeah, and I would love to, you know, like chat with you about the whole portfolio, you know, like your interest in the public market and on that end, because I, I, I just, I'm very curious about that as well, but yeah. So 
Thank you so much, Sequoia, for being here. How can we get in touch? How can this community also support you? Where can we reach you? And yeah, like so more people like me can connect with you. Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn under Sequoia Blodgett. So S-E-Q-U-O-I-A B-L-O-D-G-E-T-T. So Sequoia Blodgett on LinkedIn. And that's also universal on Instagram and then Twitter is just Sequoia B. So I don't hang out on Twitter as much, but you can definitely find me on LinkedIn and you can also find me over on Instagram. And then my venture capital firm site is Railway, R-A-L-E-W-A-Y dot V-C. Thank you so much, Sequoia, for being so, you know, like gracious with your time and your honesty during this episode. I, I truly appreciate you. And thank you so much for hanging out with Women in Tech podcast to connect and collaborate with more incredible women in tech around the world. Remember to go to the womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip. And say hello on socials. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook at Women in Tech Show. We'll see you in the next episode. Hi, I'm Sequoia Blodgett, the Managing Director of Railway Ventures. I'm from California, and you are listening to Women in Tech. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.